Take your seats. Please turn your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 9, picking up where we left off last time in verse 20. That's on page 747 of the Black Pew Bible. Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 20, picking up just after Daniel has concluded his prayer of confession on behalf of himself and Israel. Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision." Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, To the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Perhaps, as we've been studying Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 over the last few Sunday evenings, you sensed with Daniel his discouragement and even his desperation, his repeated staccato-like pleas for mercy as he confesses his sin and his experience in Babylon. Look at verse 19, just the verse preceding our passage tonight. This is the, the conclusion of his prayer He says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And uh, I've never been, we've never been conquered and exiled quite like Israel has. Had our national symbols desecrated, perhaps we could imagine, a day in which Washington, D.C. is sacked and 
the Pentagon and uh, the the national capital and the White House are in flames, and they've toppled the Washington Monument, and they've decapitated Lincoln, and they've toppled Jefferson. Perhaps we could get our minds around what it would mean to see such things. Daniel had witnessed all that firsthand, and he's been made to walk a trail of tears, as it were, into exile in Babylon. Perhaps we might imagine uh, being taken to a place, place as foreign and far off as Beijing and to long for a home and Savannah and perhaps even this great building that had been destroyed. Daniel, uh, you see, is in a, in a way living in a post-apocalyptic world. And that's a genre we tend to love in our own day, whether in literary circles or in movies. We tend to watch in my generation, I think our favorite post-apocalyptic book and movie is Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games. I don't know if you've seen the movie or read the books. They're wildly popular. I don't need to defend that point any further, but they are. Um, perhaps you have, uh, have, have in that book, uh, she describes so well the, the contrast of the capital of Pan Am, uh, which is uber wealthy and technologically advanced and decadent, to say the least, and Katniss Everdeen, who's from District 12, the far-off, remote, small place that's been desecrated, as it were, by the, the globalist society. But Katniss, of course, comes to be uh, on top of the whole of the civilization. She rises to the top of the city of the capital, and she lives in the decadence of the age. And yet, the theme throughout the whole of the books and the movies is that she's motivated, stirred by the vision of home, longing for what was, the people, all that's represented there. There's something of that in Daniel. Daniel has been taken to the wealthy and decadent capital of the world, Babylon. In so many ways, he's risen to the top of that society, and yet he still longs, he pours out his heart before God for his home, Jerusalem. You can imagine uh, living in exile is bleak, discouraging, it brings us to his prayer of discouragement, even desperation, as we saw. Now, the, the question natural, naturally arises for anyone that believes in God or has any history of believing in God. Where has he been? What has happened to us? What explains our current predicament? Where is he in our exile? Is he far off? Has he forgotten? And indeed, there is good reason for discouragement for many of us today in America. Um, you might argue that at one point in America's great history, the number one export from our nation was Christian missionaries carrying the Christian gospel to the whole world. And today you could argue that our number one export is pornography and gender ideology of one sort or another. We built great libraries across our nation to raise our moral and intellectual status in the world, and today they serve different purposes. But perhaps it's not only bleak uh, in a national or civilizational context. Perhaps we feel our, uh, the exile in our souls in a different way, perhaps at a more personal level. The trials never stop. The bad health situations in my life and in the life of my family, the relational strife, the concerns about my children, the concerns about my finances, and the concerns about Everything continues on and on. Discouragement looms for the people of God at all times. 
where is God? Where is God in our exile as a church, as a nation, and as individuals? What does he have to say to Daniel, who's crying out in prayer in discouragement and desperation? And I think what we see in our text, most helpfully and clearly, is overwhelming encouragement. A word of encouragement, but really the, the, the way the Lord comes, he, he, he seeks to encourage Daniel in the three most ordinary means of encouragement. The first thing we see in our text is he brings Daniel an understanding of what's happened and where he is. Secondly, we'll see him make a visit. The Lord visits Daniel in our passage. But thirdly, he doesn't only bring a word of understanding and a visitation, but he also brings a very specific message we'll seek to work through briefly this evening. And the word to Daniel is, of course, the word to us, Christians in America today who experience exile personally and nationally. He is not far off, and he has not left us here alone. He first brings Daniel understanding. It's, an, it's, a, it's a scary part of human existence to have pain or sleeplessness or sickness that you don't understand, that is persistent and seems to have no diagnosis. And there's a certain amount of uh, scariness that comes with going to get your blood drawn and get your cancer screenings and go to visit your doctor. But there's also a certain amount of encouragement that comes with a diagnosis with a knowledge and understanding of what it is that ails you that keeps you sleepless or sick or whatever it may be. Or perhaps this is one of the things I find to be most helpful in marriage counseling. A couple comes into my office and they're conflicted and they're frustrated at one another and things are pretty dim and they don't even understand what's going on anymore. And within a, a short while, usually you can start to tease out some patterns in the relationship or a theme we can name or an issue that we can call something and pray about and work on. And when you bring clarity, all of a sudden there's, there's hope. Of course, Daniel has a certain amount of understanding and clarity and hope. It's, I think, what drives him to prayer in the first place. We'll talk about that in a moment. This is how I felt also reading uh, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I had thought in my own mind that as the sexual revolution moved from the L to the G to the B, that when it came to the T, their common sense would take over and the ideology of uh, trans ideology would be stopped. And I, I still find it deeply discouraging that uh, our nation, our civilization, seems to have embraced it wholeheartedly. And yet uh, Dr. Truman's book, he tells a helpful story of uh, how philosophically and civilizationally and socially and psychologically in every way we, we have come to pray. And once there's a, a bit of understanding, there is hope. For Daniel and Israel, the question of how we ended up in exile, how this situation came about, they had to have an answer for. The Lord, of course, had left no mystery for Daniel and Israel how they ended up in exile. Uh, the very beginning of chapter 9, in verses 1 to 3, it tells us in verse 2 that Daniel had been looking in the very right place for hope, for understanding. He had opened his Bible, and he turned to the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had said, 70 years of exile. But of course, we know that's not all Jeremiah said, and indeed most of what Jeremiah is putting forward for the reasons why they're in exile, namely they didn't listen to the Lord, they didn't keep the law of the Lord, this is what Daniel prays. Daniel is informed. He has a certain amount of understanding of how they got there. And you know, there had to be competing narratives about how Israel ended up in exile. 
Certainly there were some who had thought that really Israel had fallen behind technologically. You know, if they had better research and development and better STEM programs and better educational systems, that they wouldn't have uh, been conquered by the larger empires. Certainly others thought, you know, it was an economic problem. If they only had more money, they would have stayed out of exile, uh, or perhaps it was some other kind of sociological or political issue, when the overwhelming, simple refrain from Moses through Isaiah and Jeremiah into Daniel, the true interpretive reason for their exile, Moses told them, generations before, Deuteronomy 4, verse 25 to 27, he says, now, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, that is, if you break the second commandment or the first commandment, so as to provoke him to anger, Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And of course, this is Daniel's understanding as well. This is what, exactly what we read in chapter 9 and verse 9 in his prayer. What is the authoritative interpretation of the exile of the people of Israel? He says, we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by the servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. See, the Lord did not leave Israel or Daniel in exile and suffering without a diagnosis, without an understanding and it's that interpretation, that understanding, we have to understand is this thing that, that keeps Daniel looking to the Lord is the first bit of encouragement, the first bit of hope in our passage is that Daniel does turn to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord does not leave us in confusion about what's happened in our own civilization either. Our nation has decried the law of God as backwards for generations now. Even the first commandment, have no other gods before me. That is, uh, we, we had for generations said we are one nation under God, but do not define that God in any particular or personal way. We are a pluralistic nation after all. Or take the last com uh, commandment, thou shalt not covet. Is not our whole social economic life built upon breaking the tenth commandment? There ought to be no ultimate confusion or even deep discouragement, perhaps, in knowing what is happening to us as a nation and as a civilization. We have turned our backs upon the law of God and the God of the law, who's written that law upon our hearts and woven it into the fabric of the universe. There is an understanding that's given to Daniel and Israel and to us. It's the first encouragement we ought to have. The second is found as Daniel describes in verses 20 through 20. Three, the visitation of the Lord. Now, I, I assume we all know the power of a, uh, a personal, in-the-flesh visitation. Uh, you know, a text can be good, a phone call perhaps a little better, uh, but there's something else when someone actually shows up on your doorstep. Our, 
Associate Pastor Evan Gear is overhauling our visitation program, seeking to make sure that we are regularly, as a pastoral staff, visiting everyone in the hospitals and all the shut-ins in their homes. We, we know from the Scriptures the power of an incarnation, of an embodiment. My senior year at Wheaton, uh, during football practice, I thought I had an ingrown hair in my arm. So I, I popped the ingrown hair, thought nothing of it. And a few hours later, I had a golf ball-sized infection on my arm. Uh, Drew Johnson uh, actually took me to the hospital there in DuPage County, outside Chicago. And uh, they lanced that large boil and squeezed out all kinds of crazy stuff. And you know, I was in the middle of my senior football season, and uh, it turns out here I have MRSA, antibiotic-resistant infection. And uh, I was not only afraid for messing up my football season, but uh, my life. Lycoming College had a, had a death from MRSA when I was in high school on their football team. So uh, the, the, after I was bandaged up, the ER sent me home, and I went to bed very discouraged, very desperate. And woke up the next morning um, who, to, to my father, who had driven 11 hours to be with me, to visit in my time of discouragement. Visitation, you see, can be a deep encouragement. Look at verses 20 to 23. Daniel tells a story of his visitation. He says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of the people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have come now out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your plea for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, the Lord, he, he visits in many ways. He comes to Daniel with an angel straight away. To Moses, he came in a burning bush. To Israel in the wilderness, he sent manna, bread from heaven, and birds to eat. To Paul in prison, he sent Timothy and Epaphroditus. Sometimes, perhaps you know, the overwhelming peace and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that comes in the midst of our discouragement when we call out to him. Or perhaps you know the encouragement of a member of the body of Christ coming to visit you. But of course... We know Gabriel as a character is connected to another important visitation in the history of the Bible. Gabriel, of course, brings, foretells to Mary and Joseph the visitation in the fullness of time when God sent forth his son. Of course, there is something deeply personal in this visitation by Gabriel. I hope you caught it in verse 23. A word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. And dear Christian, discouraged in the midst of the exile of your own life, in the midst of the suffering of your situation, whatever it may be, we ought never graduate beyond the simple truth that you are greatly loved of God, even as Daniel is greatly loved of God. Jesus himself 
tells us in John 3.16 that God so loved the world. And don't you know you're included in the world? And God loved you that he sent forth his son, that he came in visitation. When the angels proclaim the visitation of God, it's good news of great joy for all the peoples. And Jesus himself tells us that he comes not only once, but he comes again. He has visited and he will visit again. See, the Lord moves towards his servant and towards his people, both in bringing them understanding and in coming in an angelic visitation here, but thirdly, also, we'll see from our text, in bringing a specific message. This is emphatically why Gabriel comes in verse 23b. He says, therefore, consider the word, the message, understand the vision. Now, as you read verses 24 through 27, the, the message that Gabriel brings, perhaps you, know, you are more confused than when we started. Uh, this whole chapter, remember, is kicked off by Daniel reading the book of Jeremiah, presumably verse chapters 25 and 29, that speak of the 70 years of exile. It seems like Gabriel in this message seems to play off that 70 years with a motif of 70 weeks in the Hebrew 70 sevens and seven sevens and 62 sevens and half a seven. This message from Gabriel seems to play off that, seemingly extending the prophecy uh, beyond the 70 years. Now, this is a famously contentious passage. Uh, among some dispensationalists, this is seen as a very key text for understanding all of biblical prophecy. For others, it's a key in a different way. Uh, famous commentator J.A. Montgomery calls this passage a dismal swamp. He says it's a less than clear passage. Sinclair Ferguson seeks to simplify and point out perhaps the three main schools of thought of how to interpret verses 20 through 24 through 27. Uh, there's a school that says this is Antiochus Epiphanes, who we studied back in chapter 8, uh, who comes around uh, the 160s B.C. And, and destroys the temple, desecrates it. Others will say this is about the coming of Christ and really about the end of the whole world. This is really about the book of Revelation and what happens in the end. Then there's another school that sees this as a prophecy of the coming Christ, but only about the, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Another commentator, Schwab, would add three other schools branching off of how really to interpret 70 weeks or 77s. Do you take those weeks as literal weeks or literal years? Or do you take them as metaphorical years, really just stretches of time? Or do you take some of them literally and some of them metaphorically and you can see the difficulty we get into very quickly? My favorite commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, calls his lecture on this passage 70 weeks and 20 problems. And now to be clear, we believe in the inerrancy and the fallibility and the inspiration of the whole of the Bible. Further, we believe in the clarity of the Bible, its perspicuity. And yet we always need to qualify our claim to the perspicuity. Westminster Confession of Faith 1.7 explains that um, we don't believe that all of the Bible is equally clear but that what's needed for salvation is emphatically clear, it's perspicuous. The passage in front of us, I do believe, is fraught with difficulties, and I do believe it is particularly unclear. But even as murky as this passage is, I think the main contours are helpful. 
You know, my, my preaching hero, Alistair Begg, says you always want to keep the main things the plain things and the plain things the main things. And that's what I'm going to seek to do in my, my final uh, four minutes of this sermon. I think I can speak with confidence about three things in this message God gives to Gabriel to, uh, through Gabriel to Daniel. And the number one thing we ought to see from this foretelling of the future is that indeed God is in control. And that's, a, that's a surprise, right? Isn't this, hasn't this been the theme of almost every chapter within the whole book of Daniel, that God is in control? He knows the end from the beginning. I, I might not fully understand what Gabriel's trying to say with 77s and 62 sevens and seven and a half of a seven, but the Lord does. He knows the end from the beginning. He plans all, all time. History is not just one thing happening after another. He has a plan, and it is being executed perfectly according to his timeline. And don't you know that, in fact, that is encouraging? Even, as, uh, even though it says bad things will happen. Now look at verse 26. Bad things are going to happen. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now that, that, uh, that is not very encouraging, Gabriel. But within the context of which Gabriel is saying it, that it's coming, there is something encouraging to be prepared for it, and that when it comes it's not accidental. No, as the hymn writer puts it so well, whate'er my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth, I will be still whate'er he doth, and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road, he holds me that I shall not fall, wherefore to him I leave it all. God's in control. We can't miss that from this passage. But secondly... God deals with desolators. If there's anything clear from this passage, I think it's, it's verse 27. Now, I'm not sure in verse 27 who the desolator uh, who has desolations poured out upon them is. Perhaps it is Antiochus Epiphanes. Perhaps it's Herod. Perhaps it's the Romans. Perhaps it's Hitler. Perhaps it's ultimately Satan or, or the, some antichrist. Whoever it is, they're dealt with in the end. And then surprise, surprise, isn't that a theme of every one of the chapters of the book of Daniel? Whether it's the gold, the silver, the bronze, or the clay iron feet of all the civilizations of the earth, they are crushed by a stone. Whether it's the, uh, the lion, or the bear, or the leopard, or the ram, or the goat, there's a great civilizations that ravage the earth, all dealt with in the end. Or whether it's Satan himself, bound up and thrown into the lake of fire. God deals with desolators, and don't you know, that too ought to be deeply encouraging. And then thirdly and finally, what is clear is that God is in control, He deals with desolators, and thirdly, He redeems His people. Now, if you can read verse 24 and think that it doesn't apply to Jesus Christ, I'm not sure what more I can help you with. Verse 24 says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people to your holy city, why are they decreed the 70 weeks? Well, number one, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, as he numbers out these six amazing things that are to come, final, ultimate, dealing with sin and redemption things, the question 
ought to arise, well, who is this mysterious one? How does this come to be dealt with? And that is a question, again, we've seen in every chapter of the story of Daniel. There's been a mysterious one from chapter 2. Who is this stone, uncupped by human hand, that crushes the statue and fills the earth with the kingdom of God? Who is it in chapter 3? Who is this mysterious one, this fourth in the fiery furnace that looks like a son of the gods? Who is it in chapter 4, this mysterious watcher who commands the angels to hew down the tree that is Nebuchadnezzar and to bind him? Who is the mysterious owner of the hand in chapter 5 that writes upon the wall of Belteshazzar, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson? Oh, who could this be in chapter 7, the son of man who receives from the Ancient of Days all glory, honor, dominion, and power forevermore? Who else would Gabriel be speaking of but who Gabriel speaks of? The message that Gabriel brings is the message. It is the good news. It is the gospel, the foretelling of Jesus Christ. It's that theme, that person, God himself, who holds all the scriptures together. See, the Lord encourages Daniel and Israel, and us, by reminding us that, number one, he says, I am in control. I will deal with desolators, and I will redeem fully and finally. Now, what is Daniel to do, and what are you to do with this encouragement? With this encouragement from our diagnosis, our understanding, from his visitation, and from this message. And I put it to you that there are things to be discouraged about in every phase of life, both ultimate things and proximate things, but with this message of the hope and the redemption that God provides, it makes all the difference in both ultimate things and proximate things. In the ultimate things, where your soul resides forever, in peace with Him, have no anxiety or lack of peace about that. And in proximate things, the suffering in your personal health, your situation, your finances, your marriage, The call is to trust and obey, to hope and prepare, to believe and repent. It's the message of all the Bible put here once again through Gabriel to us through Daniel. Jesus tells us in John 16, 33, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray together.